I love wine, but sometimes it can get really expensive, which is why I'm so excited that today's episode is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines. If you don't know, they're a Napa-based online wine shop with a twist. They offer just one hand-picked wine per day until it sells out, which is often in hours. So new day, new wine, always at incredible prices. We're talking 30 to 70% off retail. And the best part is that there's no subscriptions, no fees, and no minimum purchase. Just a daily email with a really great wine. They're offering Datable listeners 10% off your first order with code Datable. And now is such a great time to join as their marathon sale is coming up on March 28th and 29th. They flip that one-day rule on its head and offer back-to-back deals, which means that wines are only up on the site for a couple minutes at a time and shipping is 100% free. They send us a mini marathon package of some of their favorites and let me tell you, they were delicious. Sign up at lastbottlewines.com and use the code DATABLE and find out why Last Bottle is the most fun way to discover and buy amazing wine. We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. The Dateable Podcast is an insider's look into modern dating that the Huffington Post calls one of the top 10 podcasts about love and sex. On each episode, we'll talk to real daters about everything from sex parties to sex droughts, date fails to diaper fetishes, and first moves to first loves. I'm your host, USU, former dating coach turned dating sociologist. You'll also hear from my co-host and producer, Julie Krafchick, as we explore this crazy dateable world. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Dateable, a show all about modern dating, where we dig into the whys of people's behavior and the whys of your own behavior. And this episode in particular, we (laughs) really go deep into the whys. But before we get into like why... Why are we talking about this? Um, we just want to say thank you all for attending our community live stream last week. It was a great turnout, awesome engagement, and some really fun discussions just about navigating the holidays and loneliness mm-hmm. and the feeling of is the, these weird feelings that we get around the holidays. And I think we came to some really good solutions and tactics. 
Yeah, it's a weird year. Everyone can say that, like holidays are definitely not the same. And I think there was a question about, you know, what about the New Year's kiss? Like, what about something? It's just not going to happen this year. If Unless, of course, you're in a committed relationship that you are with them quarantining or whatever is going on in your specific state. But we were talking about it and it's definitely a difficult year for people. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the things that has helped me is that nothing is forever. Like we talked about, if you look at pandemic history, like there's in the 1920s came out really strong with like the roaring 20s. So I I think that's how I get through it is I'm like, maybe there's going to be some really great years following this recession, this pandemic, all the shit that's happening in 2020. And we can't forget that we are in control of our lives and our emotions and our feelings. So if you are disappointed or upset because you can't spend the holidays with your family or with your friends or spend a New Year's Eve with someone special, those are sort of factors you can't really control because of the pandemic right now. But there are certain factors you are in control Mm -hmm. of. For example, I am in control of what I can watch on Netflix. And (laughs) if I am looking forward to a particular show, I will put it in my calendar. I actually just signed up for HBO Max. Oh, love HBO Max. Succession is on there. (laughs) Uh, The House of Ho is so good. There's the flight attendant. I've been binging that all weekend. I heard about that one. So good. So good. With Kaylee, right? Yeah, I heard there's some really great stuff. That's why I signed up for it. And my boyfriend and I are so excited to start on some of these shows. We've really just marked it in our calendars. At least it's something to look forward to. I think also like I've had some friends make the initiative to do like a virtual secret Santa or like a girl's holiday party like via Zoom. (laughs) But I think, you know, like, yeah, it's not the best. It's not as good as a holiday. I like keep thinking about our holidazzle gala that we would go to every year that I got oh so nicely reminded about on Facebook about how we've been going for five years and that's clearly not happening. But you know, it is what it is. Like it's still, you can still spend quality time with people even if it's not the way you thought it was going to be per se. My boss at my other work, (laughs) he, (laughs) he has this thing where he and his group of friends get together once a week virtually and someone has to bring in some thing of entertainment. Like you're in charge of that call. So he attended one last week where they had a magician on. He loved Mm. the magician so much. He brought on, brought him on, on a company call and he was fantastic. The stuff that you can do over Zoom, because now the possibilities are endless with multimedia. It was fantastic. But he said, Every week, there's just something unique that, you know, everyone's in charge of bringing in something. Yeah, I know like people that we've definitely seen in our Facebook group, people down about dating right now, too. Like if you're in California, we're essentially back in quarantine. I mean, other states could very much follow soon enough, too. And just in general, even if you're not in quarantine with like numbers up, it may not be necessarily, I don't know, it's a little hard to be like, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to meet all these new people when you see this, you know, there is such a risk. But then on the other side, it's like, this has been life now for a year. It's going to be a year, which is crazy. And it's like, it's up to us to not let our dating lives suffer either. So I think I definitely have found some people aren't that receptive to video calls, or especially now because I'm in Boston in my parents' house, maybe they don't want to talk to me because I'm not close by. But I've also found people that are. So it's like, again, we talked about this at the early pandemic, like maybe again, it's a filter to see people's true intentions. So it's not always a bad thing. It's all like how you process things. And you know, but what we've learned from this episode today is sometimes 
sometimes we're wired to take things in differently. And we're so excited about this conversation. This is with Dr. Abigail Lev. And I actually met Dr. Lev through a mutual friend who we've had on mm-hmm. this podcast, Lauren Korshak, who is also a marriage and family therapist. And we had her on Attachment Theories, if you all remember that episode. It was a very I popular episode. Yes. <laughs> Cue the Bachelorette theme or Bachelorette <laughs> theme. The most Here I go again. <laughs> season ever. <laughs> but I think this really came to light because we did personality types last season with Frank mm-hmm. James, which was also a very popular episode. Pe- you all love the personality dissection. I think Can't that's something enough. that people, I mean, I personally love those too. Like what explains our behavior? I think we're always so fascinated in that. And it's been super interesting because when we posted that, uh, Dr. Lev is actually in our Facebook group. And I remember her responding and being like, well, personality types are cool. They don't really tell you all that much. Like, let's talk about schemas. And I'm like, what the fuck's a schema? (laughs) And then I talked to her. I did the quiz. She gave us a quiz. And I was like, oh, my God, this quiz literally just explained everything that happened in my last relationship. Yeah, you were so into the quiz. My mind was like literally blown from doing that. And then I messaged Jue and she's like, yeah, I did schemas like three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And couples counseling. Well, you'll hear the whole story. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That is actually important to this episode that you will hear. So we will tease it there. But there is something very interesting that comes back around with that. So let's give a definition of schemas. You found a good definition earlier, Julie. So a schema in social science is a mental structure that an individual uses to organize knowledge and guide cognitive processes and behavior. And you all are probably like, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) It really means like, I think it's just what we talk about with Dr. Lev is like how we're predispositioned to because of attachment theory, because of the way we've been brought up, because of just our genetics and everything. It explains like how we process information and why we do certain things. Like there's different schemas. I think I scored highly in the perfectionist schema, which, Mm -hmm. you know, no surprise actually, there. No, <laughs> you know, no surprise, but I never thought of it in terms of my dating life before. And mm. I think that's where my mind was blown. I see it in my work life. I'm definitely a perfectionist. UA knows that. It has to deal with it. But <laughs> I never realized it was translating into my relationship. Mm. Like that was fascinating to me. The beauty of schemas is that they are innate in you to a certain extent, and they're hard to change. And in fact, you'll hear in this episode, you shouldn't try to change your schemas. The whole point is to learn more about your schemas, learn more about yourself, and then apply these learnings to your relationships to be able to communicate to your partner how you communicate and how you work is essentially showing, opening up a computer and showing how it works mechanically on the inside, right? So mm-hmm. it's not just the surface level. Look, it just runs and it, this is how it, you press A and it shows A. You're showing your partner, if I press A, what are the inner workings of what that A is doing to me? So that's why schemas are so powerful to learn, not just for relationships, but in the way we relate to everything in the world. Mm-hmm. And I really just love this conversation because of that. It is mind-blowing. 
feeling when you understand the power of schemas. It is. And this episode's a little longer, but honestly, when I was editing it, I'm like, there's nothing we can cut here. Because it's just so good. And I think that big piece too that Dr. Lev really stresses is that you can go to like like cognitive behavioral therapy to like learn how to change your behavior. So there is ways that you can adjust or even just adjusting the way that you think about things. Like I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I won't give too much away because there's a whole episode on it, but like perfectionist schema tends to hold your partner to higher standards that they may not be able to meet. So sometimes that's just not realistic. And it's not that you're like, you know, settling or doing anything less. It's just no one is perfect, including yourself. You rewire your story, essentially, therefore rewiring your behavior. And I like, so my only, my only criticism of schemas is the word schemas. I feel like there's like a negative connotation to it. It doesn't sound great. It doesn't doesn't roll off the tongue. I wish (laughs) they would just call it how you're wired. Yeah. That's literally what it is. I describe it as like, if attachment theory, if personality types had a baby, it would be schemas. It would be schemas. (laughs) Yes. But now called, recalled, (laughs) renamed to how you're wired. Because nobody wants a kid named Schema. Trademarked by (laughs) USU. Nobody wants a kid named Schema. It's a terrible name. That's true. Sorry for anybody out there named Schema. But I think the theme of the week must be behavior because in the sounding board this week, too, we have Logan Yurk who is another crowd favorite from the science of dating, who basically was a behavioral scientist like in the tech industry. And Mm -hmm. she actually took her knowledge from that and transferred it into dating and relationships. Her episode that we did with the science of dating was so popular. She has a book that's coming out in February. So we're going to have her back on the podcast. So you all will hear her again. But it's how not to die alone about just using behavioral science to navigate dating. And we are going to have her this week as a guest at the Dateable After Show, which is part of the sounding board. So if you are not in the sounding board yet, definitely check it out. It's datablepodcast.com slash sounding board. And anyone that's in the friends with benefits or the exclusive relationship tiers will be invited to this event. You can also join the lower tier, the friends tier. If you don't want to be going to events or if you're on a different time zone where events just isn't realistic or Thursdays just don't work for you, there's many options here. And whatever works for you. We're kind of starting it that way. So we can meet you where you are. And we've heard just such great things. Like I was talking to one of our members and it kind of melted my heart to hear him say this, but he was like, I actually love the sounding board even better than the old happy hours because I feel like I'm like now with like a legit group of friends and like we're going Mm. like deeper. He's like, I find myself going way more than I ever did before. And I just feel like we're connecting, talking about deeper topics. Like I really trust these people. Like, it's just, I don't know, it made me super happy. So, <laughs> and it's, it goes beyond dating. That's what I love yeah. about it. And this is why I can't stand singles events or singles groups because all you end up talking about is dating and it's like the dating woes. But when you have a legit group of people who support you and dating is one aspect of that, then you start expanding into other parts of life that are also interesting and important. Yeah. So, I love those conversations. And we have people that are in relationships, which is mm-hmm. great, whether they were in a relationship long before uh, joining the sounding board, we had one person that wrote the sweetest thing about like, because we had people like introduce themselves a little more. And he wrote like, I'm so lucky, like my heart stops every time. Like I see my girlfriend, like I'm just so like lucky, like I pinch myself. I forget his exact 
exact words, but it was something like that. And I was just like, this is amazing. And it's also amazing that you took the step to join this, even though you're in a happy relationship, because Mm -hmm. I've also talked to one of our uh, members that's been with us in our host group, Shelby, and she got into a relationship after listening to the podcast and she attributes it to the group and all this stuff. And she was saying how her and her boyfriend now listen to the podcast together and they discuss it every week. Oh my gosh. Hi, Shelby's boyfriend. Yeah, we... We've said it before that being dateable does not mean being single. It's mm-hmm. something that never stops. So yeah, it's it's for everyone. And I, I, I've been so happy with the group. Especially this event coming up with Logan Yuri. I realize why people love hearing about dating behavior is because it makes dating so fun. <laughs> if you see dating as like a job, you're going on job interviews, it exhausts you and it drains you. But if you look at it as one big social experiment that we're all part of, it makes it so fun. You're like, ooh, what are the patterns? What is the general public doing? And what is our general perception? So it's really fun that way, whether you're in a relationship or not. Just makes it all really fun. And um, what is also really fun is our would you rathers because it <laughs> tests sort of your perception. And there's this an element of groupthink because when we have mm-hmm. it on the Facebook group, people tend to vote in the direction of those earlier hours of, uh, you know, when something's posted, they're like, oh, it seems like everyone's saying this, you know, they're like um, voting for this particular mindset. So the would you rather this week was interesting. Um, The final would you rather was because it was based on mental health and dating, uh, specifically dating with depression, the episode last week with Tony. I just want to call out before we do Would You Rather with that episode, like the outreach we got from that episode Mm. was incredible. So I think like a lot of people right now are dealing with depression, especially the holidays always brings it up. The fact that we're like kind of back to where we were in March in some cases, like there's a lot going on. Or maybe you're just have depression even outside of COVID. It might not be a new thing per se. But I just want to say like how wonderful it was to hear people like appreciate this topic and also give another kudos to Tony because it takes a lot to, you know, be that vulnerable. And I thought he did such a wonderful job, like really just normalizing something that still has a stigma, despite all the efforts. Yes. That's why I don't like the word schemas. It sounds like stigma. I think <laughs> that's what it is. That That's what it is. So the would you rather is if someone you're seeing has is battling their own mental health challenge, would you want to find out in their dating profile or would you rather find out once you define the relationship? Julie, mm-hmm. what was your thought on that? And wait, you had an original yeah, no, question. I'm, I'm giving you okay, the final okay. one. I'm giving okay, you the, the final, final one. one first. Uh-huh. Okay, so for the final one, I, I always also... So try not to look at like what people are saying because I know I'm going to have to report back here. So I I was thinking this over and I think um, I would say when you define the relationship over profile. As someone that has experienced bouts of depression myself, I don't necessarily feel like that's something I need to share with every last person, especially on dating profiles. Like like the majority of them you never meet or talk to. Like it just Mm -hmm. feels too much to me. And again, Again, maybe that's like my own kind of bias coming through with stigmas, like in a world where there's no stigmas, in theory, it shouldn't matter, right? But I also feel like it's kind of like just in general on your dating profile, people can't 
Like I always, we talked about this too, like even humor, I'm going to like equate it to something that has nothing to do with mental health or anything like humor. Humor is hard to show on your dating profile Mm -hmm. because people don't know you. They don't know how to interpret it. Like if you try to be super quirky, it just might fall flat. So I think with mental health too, because there's such as like, there's a range of, you know, like just how you're managing it, like how often this happens. Like there's a lot of differing. I mean, we went into this in the episode, like there's all sorts of types of depression. So even just saying depression is a pretty blanket statement as a whole. I just think there's nothing really to gain from it. Like I think it just isn't something that necessarily needs to be there for the public. Like I think people should just present enough that someone wants to start a convo with them. Like they don't need to tell their whole life story on a dating profile. I kind of equate mental health to be to being um childhood trauma or your relationship with your family. I feel like it's sacred information. Yeah. And it's information that's earned with people who you trust. And so to put that on a dating profile, I would just think not everybody needs to know I'm in the same boat. Um, But after you define the relationship, obviously you trust that person and that's when this information Mm -hmm. should really be revealed. So we were both in the majority, 80% of people said after they DTR, 20% said in their dating profile. But you called it, Julie, in my first would you rather question, (laughs) it was a little different. It was, would you rather learn about it in the first three? three dates? Or would you rather learn about it once you define the relationship? So what did you choose Mm -hmm. with that question? Well, I would say first three dates. Um, Also, because I've been there before, like with I mentioned in the last episode, I have I had a serious ex of mine, my most recent ex dealt with depression himself. And he did share that with me. It's something that he's had since childhood. It was more, um, you know, like something he did like that was very important to him. So he did share it around like date three. It wasn't the very first date we met because you know, like he could have never seen me again. So it's like, you don't need to share that, I think, at the very start. But and it's so hard to put numbers on things like him and I, for instance, we just clicked like immediately. So by date three, it felt pretty far in. Like it felt like we were on the path to a relationship. But other people I've gone on three dates with, I'm like... Yeah, you're like, what's your last name? (laughs) Right. So I just, I don't think there's like a hard, fast rule on it. I guess I'll say the three dates with the caveat that it should be progressing. If it really isn't, then I don't think you need to share it at that stage or you can wait a little longer. It's fascinating because the tables turned with this question. That's what I, that's why I changed it midway (laughs) was because it was overwhelmingly 95 percent first three dates and five percent once you DTR and people said I really want to know early but then when I changed it to uh, in your dating profile I think that was too early for some people (laughs) so they said no I rather learn once you define the relationship I think in the first three dates especially during the pandemic I feel like people are more careful with who they go on dates with so these dates may be uh, a little different than what we used to experience they may not be so casual anymore Mm -hmm. So it is a good time for a conversation like this to pop up. It also should be natural. But I I feel like if if the trust is there and you're getting these deep conversations, it is a great time to bring it up. I think it also depends. Like if your three dates are on Zoom, I don't know if I would have that conversation. You know, like... Well, I don't know because I haven't... I don't know what it's like to date on Zoom during during this time. But we always hear people saying like, I was on Zoom with this person for eight hours and we talked about everything and we went so deep. You know, I guess it goes back to the point I just made. It really depends on 
the situation. Yeah. You can have three very surface level Zoom dates or like our episode that we had with Keth a couple weeks ago is too fast a bad thing. Mm-hmm. He was like super in his life, you know, story with this woman. So at that point, three dates probably would have been okay. So again, mm-hmm. it, I think it's all super dependent on the situation. But I bet the reason why people felt like DTR was too late is because it's like, I've made a commitment to you at this stage. Yeah. Like, isn't this information you should have shared with me? And I think I see that on one stage. It's like, it almost feels like you were like withholding something maybe like I could see that perspective. Mm. But then on the other side, it's like also just because you DTR doesn't mean that you're getting married or like spending the rest of your life with this person. Like a lot of it is just continuing to like make an investment in someone and get to know each other more. So I don't think it would be I don't know. I don't think I would feel like misled if someone told me after we define the relationship. Like I think it's something that just like whatever reason they had was it felt more comfortable at that stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't speak for other people. So they they have to choose the right moment where they feel the trust and the comfort to reveal something like that. But at the same time, what we're also trying to do is normalize mm-hmm. um, this topic. It's not an illness. It's a topic. And it should mm-hmm. be brought up when you feel comfortable. But there shouldn't be any sort of like stigma attached to no. it, or, you know, perceived stigma that you're, um, you're thinking about that you're hesitating to bring it up. On the flip side of mental health, like, I think for example, my ex who struggled with depression was probably one of the most self-aware people I've ever met mm. in my life. So I think mm-hmm. whether like, I think there's always like this stigma, but there's always a positive, a lot of creative people, like funny people, like there's a lot of like positive sides too. I'm not trying to like diminish mental health, but like, I think just hearing someone, it's just one piece of who they are. It's not the whole story. Can I just say this? And I, I have no evidence to support this, but I think everyone has mental health challenges. And it's just on a spectrum. Some people feel it with higher intensity, but everyone is struggling with some sort of mental health. Yeah, I I believe that. I don't know if that's bound by science in any way. Probably not. I just think there's people that are aware of it and there's people that aren't aware of it or people that suppress it and there's people that aren't. Or you could just get the t-shirt that I'm rocking right now. Can you show us? <laughs> I only see the socially the distanced. People, I know, it's like a little weird angle. Oh, that was a bad angle. <laughs> For everyone I just see boobies. YouTube. I know, I'm just like showing my boobs right now. But it's basically we have socially distant yet emotionally available t-shirt has arrived for everyone on youtube that was an awkward transition but (laughs) not at all (laughs) everyone's like more what else is on there (laughs) so if you're emotionally available socially distant yet emotionally available then hit julia dateable (laughs) cool all right so before we get to schemas we always like to recommend cool fun books we also have a book club in the sounding board. (laughs) So if you want to join that, join the sounding board. Uh, But this, thank you to this book in particular for supporting us and supporting this episode. It's a book called Don't Look by Alexandra Ivey. New York Times bestselling author Alexandra Ivey proves her powers to terrify and titillate in a thrilling novel of pure romantic suspense as a serial murderer with a kill list stalks 
the women of a small town in Wisconsin. His victims' bodies are left naked in the snow with nothing but a red scarf around their necks, his sinister calling card. I won't give much away uh, after (laughs) that, but Ivy is known for developing hauntingly sinister killers and balancing them with the kinds of fierce female heroines and memorable, strong alpha male characters that romantic suspense readers crave. You can find more information about this book at kensingtonbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Ooh, red scarf around their naked bodies. Chilling. (laughs) Chilling. Okay. (laughs) Equally as chilling is learning about your schemas. Let's get to it. On last season, we had an episode about Myers-Briggs personality types, and it was wildly popular. But I think it's also important to bring in other types of personality and traits that could show up in a relationship and the current resources that we have. So this on this episode, we're talking about schemas. And I feel like schemas <laughs> is one of those things like not many people know about, no. but it's so useful. So we've got Dr. Abby Lev here. She has a practices in both Oakland and San Francisco. She grew up sort of on the East Coast, and she's the director of the Bay Area CBT Center. Hi, Abby. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. you. (laughs) And I remember you saying with personality types that you didn't love Myers-Briggs and schemas was a much more accurate way of portraying people. So excited to dive into this with you. And before we get into what schemas are, so Julie (laughs) brought up this topic of schemas first, and I was like, that sounds so familiar. And so I went back through my notes (laughs) and I went through couples counseling with an ex of mine where the entire program was around schemas. So we took the schemas test in the beginning, and we had to talk about how it showed up in our relationship. And at the end of this counseling session, it was like two weekends, the therapist that led this group was, you know, we reached out to her and said, we really would like to continue therapy. Could you recommend someone? And she recommended a lovely woman named Abby. (laughs) No way! Oh the my goodness! Funny because I say I sent you a the quiz that you sent, and she was I like, can't. "Wait, I found an old email." <laughs> Wait, this is the best <laughs> part. It gets better. So this all happened about three years ago, okay? And our relationship was already on the brink of just being done. And after this whole like couples counseling uh, workshop, I remember going to Julian said, "This opened up this yeah. whole other side of me." where I want to learn more about relationships and how I can really show up for my partner. I have to say it was probably a little bit too late for our relationship to realize that, but we did schedule a consultation with you, Abby. And I remember this consultation (laughs) so well because after Julie and I had this conversation about schemas, I went back through my email and I was like, bam, it was Abby. (laughs) We had a consultation with you. I was already kind of like, I don't know if this is the right relationship. And during the consultation, and I, you know, I just have to get, give a disclaimer. My ex was wonderful, great guy, just kind and just a wonderful person. We were not compatible. We were holding on to a relationship that was never going to work out. Mm-hmm. But on that consultation with you, Abby, oh my you asked this question. What did I say? <laughs> you asked this <laughs> You, oh, you no. asked both of us, do you want to get married? Do you see yourself getting married to each other? And his answer was, 
I'll do whatever UA wants to do. And that right there sealed the deal for me that we were so not compatible for each other because I felt like he just wants to do whatever to appease me. I had no idea who he was in this relationship. So after we got off the call with you, we broke up. And I remember sending you an email the next day saying, <laughs> her face for anyone listening is just like, I cannot, I just, I cannot believe this story. I did not know this before. Oh, we didn't know until I about mean, 20 minutes before this 20, call. Yes, exactly. We just, we just this put it all together. Because it all sounded too familiar. But our email to you was, we've decided to separate, you know, go our separate ways. But we would like to possibly continue one-on-one coaching with you, therapy with you. And you had responded back and said, I can, I would suggest just doing one of you because it's, it's not, it's not fair to have both of you be my client. So that's basically where we left it about oh three God. years ago. Full but our convert I mean, literally in that like 15 minute consultation with you. <laughs> I found so much clarity. <laughs> you broke up your, your relationship after talking to me for 15 minutes. <laughs> hey, you know what? As someone who is a bystander of this relationship, I will again second that UA's ex was a wonderful person. They just were terrible fit. And it was one of those things that like, as a friend, you can only say so much. And you're just like, are you happy? You know, and it's one of, yeah. I think you actually did your job quite right because you probably pinpointed it and made it super clear and gave that clarity you needed. That's the funny thing we say in couples therapy, right? We say sometimes an effective couples therapist helps a, ca- a couple be happier and more satisfied in their relationship. But sometimes uh, uh, an effective couples therapist helps the couple and the relationship uh, amicably you know, and, and quickly and effectively, because we, you know, we have to learn how to be good at relationships and maintaining and sustaining relationships, but we also have to be good at at saying goodbye and knowing when something's not working for us. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. ending in a way where we do it and consistently with our values and how we want to be in relationships. So, you know, a couple's therapist should never be invested, right. In, in keeping Mm. the couple together. But I tell you, I would have never been able to guess that, this, <laughs> that you were about to come up with this story in a million years. <laughs> I just How think this is the awesome. funniest moment. What a small right? world. What a small what? world. Everything comes full circle. But I remember telling Julie about yes. schemas. And I wanted you to take this test because I thought it was so insightful. It told me, it gave me so much insight to who I am in a relationship. So let's first start off with what are schemas? You know, before I even say that, I want to say I don't remember the session, right? But I, I, um, I would say that it sounds like your partner either has a, he had he either had a subjugation of schema course. or a self right. It sounds very like a subjugation schema. Subjugation was his number one. So what is that yeah. for anyone that doesn't know schemas at all? So, so schemas are core beliefs, like beliefs that we have about ourselves and about others in relationship. And a subjugation schema, for example, would be a belief that you are kind of powerless in relationships or that you have to basically, you have to repress your own needs Mm. in order to maintain the relationship. So a person who has a subjugation schema will have a lot of fear driving their relationship. And their fear is that if they make their needs a priority, they may get abandoned or they may get punished or they may get, there's going to be some sort of retaliation 
or punishment or, or an abandonment uh, because of having a need and, and, and trying to get it met in the relationship. So how are they, how is this different than Myers-Briggs? Because yeah. it feels very different, but I'd love for you to break it down of why you think this is more of the ideal way to kind of understand yourself. Yeah. Well, I want to say the big difference between the Myers, the Myers-Briggs is more of a personality a questionnaire, which lets you know very general personality traits. Whereas schemas are actually core beliefs. It's not like a personality that we have. It's just a belief that we have about ourselves. Like for mm. example, somebody could have a dependency schema and actually be quite an independent person, mm. right? It's really, it's just what you believe about yourself. It's not really facts about your personality or who you are. It's about what you believe about yourself. But what's interesting about schemas, and we all develop them at a very early age, so if, for example, your mom died at a young age, you may have an abandonment schema. Or if you were abused in some way, you, mis you may have a mistrust abuse schema. So we develop these core beliefs in early childhood, and then we learn certain behaviors to do with those beliefs. Uh, for example, if somebody has an abandonment schema, they believe that others will abandon them and leave them mm. or reject them. They could become very needy, right? And, and scared, and, and they may be kind of seeking excessive reassurance, like, do you still love me? Where are you? Where have you been, right? Or they could do the very opposite behavior. They could abandon before they get abandoned. Mm. They could become really cold and distant. Right. So the belief, uh, we, we have to understand the belief, but then we have to also understand the behavior that they do when that belief uh, gets triggered for them in relationships. And so the person with the same schema can actually manifest it in a different way. Interesting. I definitely have a bit of an abandonment schema. Not like, so. it wasn't my most prominent, but it was one of them. And it's interesting because I feel like my childhood was definitely not like abusive or bad in any way, but my dad would very much like shut down in fights. And I saw that right. and I think that's where it stems from. So there's definitely like, I feel like there could be the extremes, but there could also be instances that might not be as extreme that all also play into how you perceive relationships. Right. We all develop schemas. So we all have core beliefs. None of us are free from it. And you don't have to have a trauma in order to, to develop a core belief, right? Right. These are just little attachment wounds, right? So mm. we don't necessarily need to be in an abusive home to develop these core beliefs. Actually, uh, we, we can have schemas that are more maladaptive or more adaptive but we're, we're always having beliefs about what will happen to us in relationship with others, right? So I think that's really important to note with schemas. It's that it's a belief and not reality. So you could have an abandonment schema where you believe people will abandon you, but that's not mm -hmm. actually what people in your life do. And I think that's why I found schemas so fascinating because you, what you believe is what you perceive as your truth when that may not be reality. So we talked about abandonment schema. Let's yeah. go through all of the other ones. I, I want to speak though be to what you said right now before moving forward, which is what's interesting is that a belief doesn't, it could be imaginary. It doesn't mean that it's happening, but if you behave accordingly, you can create a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. making the very thing you fear actually happen and making it real. Mm. And often schemas occur that way. Uh, think about it. If somebody has an abandonment schema and they're calling up and they're going, where are you? Do you still love me? Why didn't you text me? where have you been? Are you with mm. someone else? Then that person is likely to actually end up getting abandoned. That other person may start 
making more distance. So what's interesting about schemas is they end up creating these self-fulfilling prophecies that do end up making it real if we don't change our behaviors around those beliefs. Wow, mm. like manifestation. Right. And what's interesting about schemas too is actually there is a way when you look at a schema questionnaire, I'm going to go over the schemas, but when you look at the schema questionnaire, there is a way and you, got, you want to be very careful and you want to make sure it's a psychologist that's doing it, but there is a way that we could get information about somebody's personality. So for example, if you're getting a schema questionnaire and all of the schemas are very, very high and it's hard to distinguish the main ones that it means it might mean that there may be a personality disorder there of some sort a minor mm. or, or yeah or larger yeah interesting and there and there are certain um dynamics between schemas that could suggest particular personality disorders like for example person with a narcissistic personality disorder mm. may have uh their top three schemas are usually entitlement right so entitlement mm -hmm. is a core belief basically that your needs are more important than others, right? Or that you're more special than others, or it's like a sense of deserving, right? Expectation that, you know, what you want is the right way and you will get your way, right? That's an entitlement schema. And uh, another schema for a person with a narcissistic personality is um, defectiveness shame. And defectiveness shame is the belief that something is very deeply fundamentally wrong with you, mm. causing a lot of shame that you're broken, right? Or, or bad in some way. And the third schema in a narcissist, the, the triad for a narcissistic personality, the third one was mistrust abuse. So mm. again, we would never want to think that somebody that has these schemas has the personality disorder, but we would, if we look, look at the questionnaire and every one of their schemas is high, the highest it could be, and their top three are those three, we may start wondering, right? We may start wondering, if it possibly could be a personality disorder because often you know some of our schemas are high some of them are medium some of them are low sometimes we don't have any in, in the 10 schemas but if all of them are high then there are certain triangles that can lead to certain uh, personality structures like a borderline personality structure would be um, abandonment right so we have abandonment emotional deprivation and mistrust abuse so abandonment is the, the, the feeling, right? The belief that others will abandon you. Mm -hmm. Emotional mm -hmm. deprivation is a core belief that you will not get your needs met in relationships. And mistrust abuse is a feeling that you cannot trust others in relationship, that people will harm you, damage you. They're not trustworthy, that they may lie or deceive or betray you in some way. Got it. Mm -hmm. What about, um, I think the other ones, perfectionism, I definitely got that one. So I'm curious to hear more of that. And then um, I think you said the other, all the rest, but social alienation, did you mention that one too or not yet? So there's 10, 10 of them. So you talked about entitlement, abandonment, mistrust, defectiveness, emotional deprivation and self-sacrifice and subjugation. So let's go to perfectionism. What is that? Yeah. So I will say that perfectionism right now is the most common schema I see. Mm. It's the most common schema both among men and women. So it makes sense that a perfectionism schema or an unrelenting standard schema, it's when we put really high standards and expectations on ourselves and on others. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, it's both on ourselves and on others. But there's some people that actually, it's actually more on themselves than on others. Mm -hmm. So we're always assessing. We don't take 
a schema questionnaire too literally, right? We're always asking questions and assessing and asking if it resonates with the person. But the most common schema that I see is perfectionism, is people putting really high standards on themselves, you know, um, and putting like putting such high expectations that are not right. The reason it's called unrelenting standards is because they're very hard to meet. We cannot meet these standards. They're unrelenting. And there's a lot of criticism with a perfectionism schema. The feeling that shows up the most for people with a perfectionism schema is this feeling of disappointment or mm -hmm. not enoughness, not yep. could have been better, right? This feeling of disappointment or wanting more. Let's hold that thought for a second. We'll get right back to it. This episode is sponsored by Via. We all know there are things that can help set the mood in the bedroom, but did you know a little THC could also do that? Yes, Via has developed a unique blend of pleasure-enhancing cannabinoids, libido-strengthening herbs, and a low dose of THC all into one mind-blowing gummy called High Love. This gummy, wow, it will awaken your senses, increase blood flow, and intensify any sexual experience. I've been pleasantly surprised by the High Love gummies because it is just the right amount of THC for me to have a good time without feeling sleepy. And hey, if THC is not your thing, Via also offers a wide array of other gummies without it. And everything legally ships in 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC plus CBN sleep gummies with our exclusive code DATEABLE at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. Let the gummies work their magic. Head to ViaHemp.com and use the code DATEABLE to receive 15% off and one free sample of their sleepy dream gummies. That's ViaHemp.com and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E at checkout. Take your passion and pleasure to a whole new level with high love from Via Hemp. We are so excited to share with you our new podcast exit interview. Dates don't usually end with a satisfaction survey, and yet we rate everything in our lives, from Uber drivers to local coffee shops. So why don't we do the same thing when dating? We're here to conduct the ultimate romance review, featuring daters hungry for love who have agreed to call up old flames to gather honest feedback. Welcome to Exit Interview. He upgraded himself to business class while I was in economy. <laughs> Wait, wow. What? There's feedback that will make you cringe. She could be a little bit hard-headed, like not reading the writing on the wall. And feedback that will make you swoon. But she said that she had feelings for you. I had no idea. Really? And maybe you'll learn a thing or two yourself about how you can be a better dater, lover, or partner. Obviously, like, knew I was going to learn something. I didn't expect this. Welcome to Exit Interview. Listen to Exit Interview on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I could see that being a huge issue in like dating too and relationships. Like I know that's been a challenge for me because it's like you always want more. You always want people to like, sometimes you expect people are a mind reader because of perfectionism tendencies. So I can see how that one definitely shows up. Why do you think so many people have this schema? A, I think our society is becoming more and more perfectionistic, right? We're, we're expecting to live the American dream, to have money, to have this, to have that, right? To be successful. And so it's an unrelenting standard to think we could afford to go to college and then buy a home and then have a family and then have this, right? Like that's, I mean, people aren't even able to pay their debts for school. How, how you know, the, the standards that are put on us are very, very, uh, 
unreachable. Mm. So we we do and and look at look at the the, the messages that we get about it, what women should look like, right? Yep. I mean, these are on, who who looks like that? Who looks like Angelina Jolie, right? Yeah, and it's like dating, like having like it's like having the perfect relationship, having the perfect career, like all this stuff. It's just so much to handle at once. Having it all. Absolutely. It's a having it all mentality. That's exactly what it is. And and we can't, it's not realistic to have it all. And I, I wanted to speak to what you were saying, Julie, because what's interesting about it is that it can show up in different ways. Like it can show up like feeling like, oh, my partner's not good enough or it's not enough with this partner or wanting more or feeling a sense of dissatisfaction. Or it could show up like, is our relationship dissatisfying? Like, do others have it better? Mm. Or it could show up kind of like the people that have difficulty committing, right? And it's like like a kind of FOMO where you mm. can't commit to one person because the next person could be better or the next person could be better and you can't really commit to anyone. So it could, again, it could manifest in many different ways. And then when you think about the relationship to other schemas, it changes the whole dynamic. An interesting dynamic is when a person has both a perfectionism schema and an abandonment schema. Mm. It could look a little bit like you kind of oscillate between oh my God, is my partner going to leave me? I need them. And then kind of moving towards them and then being like, is this the right relationship? I don't know if this partner's good enough. And then moving away from them, right? And then being like, oh no, are they leaving me? So there's like- Oh my God, that's me to a team. Right. So that's what's interesting. It's like, it could show up as different attachment styles. A person with an anxious, ambivalent attachment style or an anxious avoidant attachment style, right, could have different schemas or the same schemas with different attachment styles. So it's very interesting. You always want to think about the schema questionnaire in relation to other schemas because they all play along together. So what, after mm. perfectionism, what's the second most common one that you see? Um, perfectionism is the most common one. Subjugation is a, is a common mm-hmm. one. I would say more for women than for men, but subjugation, if we think about it, relationships are a lot about negotiating and getting your needs met. And so there's, you know, feeling kind of powerless or feeling subjugated. And that's a common one in relationships. I would say that one is more common for women than for men. But in general, that's a common one. The the schema that I see the most in women um, is self-sacrifice. So self-sacrifice schema is the one that is most um, common in women. And the ones that are most common in men are usually entitlement or defectiveness shame. And so it's interesting to think about the standards that society puts on us or the messages that we're getting from society uh, around gender and gender norms and these kinds of ideas and how they impact our core beliefs about ourselves. Interesting. I find that those two really conflicting as well, entitlement and defectiveness. It's like you're, you feel you are entitled to certain things, but at the same time, you also feel like you're defective, so you're not deserving of certain things. Well, what's interesting is that we always want to think in, in, with schemas in relation to one another. So it could be that the person with an entitlement schema doesn't have defectiveness shame. Like, for example, it's more common for somebody with entitlement to have a perfectionism schema. Mm-hmm. So that the person who has entitlement and perfectionism looks rather different than the person that has entitlement, defectiveness, shame. But what's interesting about it is that the person that has defectiveness, shame, it actually has an entitlement schema as an overcompensation for it. So if you're feeling a lot of shame, right, and you're feeling like you're so bad, then you need that even more to deserve to get what you want to prove that you're not that. So what's very interesting about it actually is that narcissism, which is a, a, a disorder of grandiosity and entitlement, 
is actually a shame-based disorder. Yeah. The number one feeling that drives the whole thing is actually shame. And it's, mm. so it's a very complex issue if we think about it that way. Throwback to like early dateable, but I remember on season uh -huh. one, we had someone <laughs> basically come and talk about this like on again, off again, I'm not going to make you my girlfriend. I'm going to hook up with other people in front of you. Narcissist that she was dating. And I remember wow. our co-host at the time, Michael, for anyone that's been with us for a long time, he had his master's in clinical psychology. And I remember him uh -huh. saying that he had, it was shame. Like that's where it was coming from. And that was something that she had never thought about because he had this super confident persona. And the last thing you would think about is shame. So it's funny that like all these, you know, the fuck boys out there, might there might be something deeper going on is what I'm gathering from this. Well, but you know, what's very interesting about it is we want to be very careful because the shame-based disorders, what's very interesting about them, the person that feels a lot of shame, again, in a narcissistic structure, if they have a narcissistic character, they tend to not feel a lot of guilt. So mm. they, so, so shame, actually, uh, shame is more about me. It is a very, uh, actually, it's a very self-absorbed feeling. Like, for example, if me and you get into a fight and I say, whatever it is, you're a jerk, right? If I was to feel guilt, I'd be thinking about it later and going, oh my goodness, I said that and Julie's really hurt and she looks sad. I feel really guilty. Why did I do that? Maybe I should apologize. She might be crying right now. Maybe I ruined mm. her day. Shame does not sound like that. Shame sounds like, why did I say that to Julie? I'm so oh, bad. I should be better. I messed oh. this up. I'm so awful. I never deserve anyone. But it's really, it's, it's very interesting to think about because it's very me, 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 me. Interesting. Uh, guilt, yeah. Guilt will actually, guilt actually aids for the person to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. shame doesn't. The person who feels shame is not likely to change their behavior. I was going to ask you, where does guilt fall into all this? Like, which schema does that kind of manifest in the most? Or That's, does it not? That is such a great question, because actually the one that that manifests the most in is in self-sacrifice. That's what I was going to guess. And I was right, going to guess that. <laughs> right, exactly. Self-sacrifice is a guilt-driven schema, right? And so it's very interesting because self-sacrificers are literally magnets for entitlement schemas. And people with an entitlement schemas are magnets for people with a self-sacrifice schema because they are the opposite side of the same coin. The person, it's like a... It's a schema maintaining relationship is what we call it. A schema maintaining relationship is when you're with somebody who continues to confirm that the core belief is true. So if I have a self-sacrifice schema and I feel guilty putting my feelings and my needs before others, and I have a partner who has an entitlement schema and they believe that their needs and feelings come before others, we're a perfect fit because we continue to confirm the core <laughs> belief of the other person. Interesting. So we talked about a bunch, how they fit into like dating and relationships. What about, I'm curious about emotional deprivation and also I'm curious about social alienation. I can kind of guess that one, but would love your take. Yeah. Yeah. So emotional deprivation schema. And I want to say what's really cool about schemas, what I find really cool about it is that you know, it's kind of like the more that you do it and you see people with a schema, the more you have a good sense of it and you're able to identify it quickly and kind of be able to make a lot of predictions about people. Like you did for so, you as ex-boyfriend. 
Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Exactly. Exactly. Bingo. <laughs> it's like you described it to a T. <laughs> you know, yeah. I also want, I want to distinguish between a subjugation schema and a self-sacrifice schema because those two seem similar. Mm-hmm. Both of them are driven by the idea that other people's um, uh, needs are more important than your own. But a self-sacrifice schema, like Julie pointed out, is more driven by feelings of guilt. Mm. Oh, no, this person is sad if I do what I need. Or, oh, no, I'm hurting them if I, you know, um, get lunch without them or take a long time. Whereas a subjugation schema is driven more by fear. I will, they will mm. punish me if I do what, what I want or mm. they'll abandon me. So it's a very similar flavor, but driven by a different feeling. Interesting. So do you um, think self-sacrifice drives more resentment than subjugation? Um, I would say actually that um, both of them, like you said, you're making a very good point because both of them end up with a lot of feelings of anger and resentment. I think that what happens is depending on how much awareness the person has, I would say uh, it may be that the subjugating person feels more resentment. Let me explain it a little bit differently. The person with a self-sacrifice schema has a little bit more awareness that they're self-sacrificing, whereas the person who's subjugating has a little bit less awareness. Like Mm. if, if I'm If I'm going to a restaurant, like the person who's subjugating may actually blame you for subjugating them, even if it's their own belief. They they may actually feel like you're controlling them or you're making them do something or you've Mm. manipulated them, even because it's difficult for them to say no. So I guess I would say that both uh, end up in a lot of anger and resentment, but Mm -hmm. it can look very differently depending on the level of self-reflection or or awareness that the person has. Like a good example of this is like, let's say you're asking me to borrow my car and I say, I I can't lend you the car. And then you start kind of guilt tripping me about it or or attacking me over it. Right. It's like, if I, if, if it's difficult for me to say no, to lend you the car, if I'm thinking about it this way, Oh no, Julie, Julie really needs to get to this job interview. And if she doesn't go to this job interview, she might not get the job and I don't want her to miss a job. And then I give you the car. I've just self-sacrificed. I may, I may feel a little resentful, but I I have a little bit of awareness that I I did that. Whereas let's say you kind of ask me for it and I don't even notice to say no, I just go, okay, here. And then later I start kind of realizing like you're driving it and I'm like, did she get gas? Did she do this? Mm. I didn't ask her for this. Why did I agree to this? Right? It's like the subjugating person is not even so aware that they've just done something. They, they literally kind of feel like they don't, they, they're helpless. They're, their number one feeling is a sense of helplessness or obligation. Interesting. That's super so interesting. If two, <laughs> if two people are in a relationship and both of their dominating schemas are subjugation, <laughs> what happens in that relationship are they just like do they just not know what their needs are and they just keep subjugating to each other it it depends and often that's not very common two subjugators getting together is not so common (laughs) because but it depends if they have low uh awareness it could manifest in many different ways where they feel controlled over like they may agree to things that they think the other person wants and then at the end realize that neither one wanted those right (laughs) so that it could look like that Mm -hmm. or it could also look like being really indecisive what do you want what do you want right it could look like indecision right so it, it could manifest in many different ways it could manifest like assuming that this somebody wanted something it could manifest like 
uh, being indecisive, or if they can kind of slow it down and have more awareness, it could actually lead to really listening more and taking your time not to subjugate yourself or the other person. But any any mm. schemas where you have more awareness, they're more workable, right? right? Wait, so you said that it's unlikely that those two would get together. Is that because like they're both not really like no one's pushing it forward? Like what is the reason why those two wouldn't get together? I think that's a very interesting question. Um I don't know the reason, but it's not something I see commonly. And I think it's because often people who subjugate are looking for uh, somebody, they're just more kind of magnetized to somebody who's a little bit more of a leader, Mm. you know, because they tend to kind of go along. So often you see those with people who are the perfectionists or have an entitlement schema or just a different schema because, or even an abandonment schema, but actually subjugation subjugation and abandonment look like the typical pursuer distance or dynamic oh my god right? i feel like i'm like unraveling so much about my own last relationship <laughs> but i'll wait for you to diagnose me but this is all like coming together and making too much sense right now <laughs> because the the person who's feeling abandoned is like oh my goodness where are you where are you and right. the person that feels subjugated is like you're taking over my life i'm i'm being um kind of uh overtaken i'm losing myself right Right. I mean, I mean, the thing with schemas is that they're so tied to each other that the more of a perfectionist you are, the more of a subjugator your partner could be. That, like that's, that's what I found in my last relationship. That's that's the beauty of it, right? <laughs> the beauty is how they interact, not only with the other person, but also with your own schemas, yeah. right? Because somebody, I mean, so I'll get to your, your question, uh, Julie, around the emotional deprivation schema, and I could show you how this could look completely different even in your own schemas, right? It depends on, just like you said, the interaction between the other person and within your own schemas, and it could look radically different, right? Mm -hmm. That's why there's 10 of them, but you could have like so many different dynamics between two people. It's very interesting. So uh, an emotional deprivation schema is the core beliefs that your needs won't get met in your relationships. And it's your need for, it could be your need for support, your need for validation, your need for care, or it could be your basic needs, your needs to eat, your need, right? And the emotional deprivation schema feels like usually when people have this, there's an urgency to it. Like, (gasps) it's like the deprivation is very, it almost feels to me, every person I've had with an emotional deprivation schema to me, and I get an image of a crying baby who just cried and cried and cried and nobody attended to, and they would just cry louder and cry louder, or they'd stop crying, right? They do all of these things to try to get their needs met. Mm. And, and the level of desperation that comes w- w- when you don't feel like your needs for survival are met, uh, because it does, it's, it's a very intense schema and it's very urgent and it could oscillate. So the person who has an emotional deprivation schema and they believe that others will not meet their needs. Often the most common, they oscillate between different ways of being, but the most common thing I've seen, the common uh, dynamic is that they start out with not saying their needs. They kind of hold in their needs. They think they're needy. They have too many needs. And so they don't want to share them and they're afraid to share them. They hold it in and they hold it in. And by the time that they do share it, they're kind of so, they're like a balloon that has just popped. And then they're having mm. all of these needs and they're like, and, and it's very overwhelming and this didn't happen, this didn't happen, right? And, and, mm. and so at that point, and so both end up kind of creating the same outcome that their needs don't get met, right? If you don't share your needs or if you wait until they are a nine out of 10, mm. uh, right? Like of, of necessary, uh, both strategies end up 
creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where you don't feel like your needs got met in that relationship. Let's hold that thought so we can take a moment for our sponsor. We like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. So what is interfering with your happiness right now? What is something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? Most of the time, it's all about our mental health. And that's where BetterHelp comes into play. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, then connect you in a safe and private online environment. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, and then you can send messages to your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone session. Find that particular expertise you need now with licensed professional counselors who specialize in areas like depression, stress, anxiety, sleeping, relationships, and self-esteem. Anything you share is completely confidential, and their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com datable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash datable. And we want to thank another sponsor, Magic Spoon. I really love that the current trend is all about healthy eating. For one, cutting down on carbs and sugar has been especially difficult for me because I didn't realize there was so much of that in basically everything that I love, particularly in cereal. So when I heard about a magic cereal with zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving, I was like, um, sold. Y'all, this is not magic. This is Magic Spoon, a line of delicious tasting cereal that is almost too good to be true. And it's all keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, GMO-free, and frankly, guilt-free. Check out magicspoon.com slash datable to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code datable at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash datable and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E for free shipping. All right, let's get back to this episode. Interesting. This this feels like a very preemptive schema. Like you're basically saying my partner will never satisfy my needs before you even enter into a relationship. Yeah, I was... I was going to say definitely what I probably if I took this test, the quiz like a couple years ago, I bet I would have scored much higher on that than I do Mm. today. Well, that means that you've done a lot of work on yourself, right? That's exciting. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I feel like I have some schemas that I've like gotten like so good with, like they don't even impact me that much. Like they still show up. It's not that they disappear, but your behaviors change and you have this freedom to act differently when the beliefs pull you towards old behaviors that only reinforce the schema but then it's 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 funny how there's other schemas that i feel have have grown (laughs) some have like decreased (laughs) others have grown totally so it's it's interesting to think about it um but you know i would say that uh all schemas are a bit preemptive right Mm. like this one i agree with you it is it has a more preemptive feel than others But uh, all of them are pretty preemptive because we're already bringing in a map of what we think it's going to, how it's going to unfold. And the more that we listen to the stories about how it's going to unfold, the more that the stories are driving our behaviors, the more likely our schemas will come true. And the more we're able to notice the story and that it pulls us to do behaviors that will only confirm our schema, then we could then notice what our values are 
and replace those schema-driven behaviors with values-based behaviors. And then we're less likely to continue confirming kind of and repeating, right? Like a self-repetition rep- compulsion. Interesting. Mm. I definitely can see that with all of them. The only one I'm still like not grasping 100%, I'd love your thoughts on this one, is social alienation. Is that because you basically assume that you're not like accepted socially, socially, or does that mean something else? No, you're on it. It is social alienation schema. It's a feeling of unbelonging that mm. you don't belong in a community. And it's like a sense of loneliness and a sense of kind of, uh, I'm different from everyone. It has a very different flavor from a defectiveness shame schema because it's not like I'm bad. Mm. It's more like I don't belong or it could be they're bad. Why are they bad? Why don't, right? It's, it, it doesn't have to be that you're bad, but it's a big feeling like a, a sense of emptiness, unbelonging, oh, a, a lack of community. Uh, often uh, it's very common in people who are um, uh, immigrants, Right. Mm. If you if you come from a certain culture, you move to a different country. That's a very common schema to have. Interesting. I could see that yeah. showing up in dating. Like there's no one that either likes me or there's no one that understands me. Is there any other ways that you see that one showing up? So uh, I think that you're nailing it. One of the main ways it shows up is this feeling I'm never understood. I'm never truly seen. It's this feeling like is this partner the person I'm meant to be with? Is this the right person for me? And it's a feeling of sometimes being with your partner and still feeling alone and still feeling a a sense of like not belonging together, not connecting together. So there's feelings of distance, but it could also show up in other ways. It could show up like um, your family doesn't like me or my family doesn't like you, or I don't like your friends. So anytime that I see couples where they're where there's a lot of stuff around friends and family, it's usually related to a social alienation schema, especially Mm. if, you know, there's parents that don't like the partner or, or like a group or they're not getting along with their partner's friends. That's most likely a social alienation schema. What about people who really reject traditions, who feel like I don't understand monogamy, I don't understand gender roles, or people who feel like they just don't, un- they don't see eye to eye with most people in their life. I have a friend who is just extremely smart. He's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I think he feels alienated a lot of the times because he cannot hold conversations with anyone. Right. Well, I think the key word that you use is feeling alienated, right? Because it's a mm. social isolation alienation schema. So if the if the feeling that shows up is one of feeling alienated and alone and distant, then it's most likely a social alienation schema. But if it shows up more as judgment and not as necessarily alienation, it could be perfectionism or it could Mm, be entitlement, right? Interesting. Like an entitled person could go, well, they don't know anything. I'm smarter than them and I'm smarter than them and nobody gets me. I'm so special. Right. Right. And so that has a very different flavor than the person who, who like really feels alone and wants to connect with people and feels like they're like literally like an alien, right? Right. Like from a different planet. Well, I'm so excited to go into ours because I feel like seeing how they weave together is going to be really interesting. So we'll let you dissect us. But before we get into that, uh-huh. how were these 12 like decided? Like who came up with like these should be the 12 schemas? So I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's a funny story, but... Um, um, Jeffrey Young is the first person to really come up with the idea of, of schemas in the sense of core beliefs. Like we've always had schemas as 
maps of understanding things. Like, how do I go to the store and get toilet paper? We have a schema for it, right? But uh, uh, Jeffrey Young was the first person to talk about the idea of core beliefs in relationships and, and using attachment styles with cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Because schemas are really schema therapy is an integration of attachment and psychodynamic therapy mixed with behaviorism. So it's a very interesting treatment. But he started with 10. He started with 10 core schemas. And what's interesting is that then, and I, I hope he doesn't hear this ever, I really do. I've never met the man. I've read a lot of him. Yeah. He's an active, beautiful <laughs> listener. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, right. Um, He's our number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll say it because I don't think he will be listening, but I think he may, he may have a grandiosity schema. He may, his own entitlement grandiosity schema kind of led him to continue and bring more and more and more and more schemas. So now I think he's up to like 22. Oh, maybe. damn. Right. But in reality, the more that the, the more schemas he added, the more um, the, the less uh, really some of the added schemas that he added are more behaviors than they are schemas than they are beliefs. Like, for example, emotional inhibition, which is a person that mm. holds back their emotions. There's also a vulnerability to harm. Uh, I think vulnerability to harm is a schema. Actually, it's a core belief. But I don't use it in my work for relationships because it's not an interpersonal schema. So vulnerability to harm, yeah, vulnerability to harm is the fear that you are vulnerable. It's like a hypochondriacal disorder, right? So it's like uh, worrying that you might get sick or that you're weak mm. or that your body's not working well or that you need to go to the doctor. So a vulnerability to harm schema is, is a core belief that you're, you're fragile in that kind of way. Got it. So there's many. These are just the 12 that we've pinpointed are more just the ones that are interpersonal. Is that correct? There's 10 that I use and these 10 are interpersonal ones that are in relationships. There's some that are not in relationships, but many of the new schemas are, are, are what I would say are not just a core belief because they include a behavior. For example, emotional inhibition is not a core belief, right? I mean, there's a core belief in there, but a per, an emotional inhibition is when a person represses their emotions, right? They're kind of right, like holding back on their own emotional expressivity. And so basically the dilemma with using that as a schema is that it's more of a coping behavior than a core belief because somebody with an abandonment schema can also use emotional inhibition, right? Be emotionally inhibited or somebody with an entitlement schema could be emotionally inhibited. Somebody with an emotional deprivation schema can be emotionally um, inhibited. So it's still informative, but it's, it, starts getting, it starts getting out of just core beliefs and starts yeah. getting into behaviors. It's interesting to look at, but it's not as clean cut, if that makes sense. It's not just a uh, uh, belief. I'm like dizzy thinking yeah. about yeah. all of this, right? <laughs> so because <many>. everything, everything <laughs> is interconnected. Yeah. And I also believe that schemas change over time, yeah. depending on where you are in, in, in life, who your partner is. I took this test three years ago. My schemas are very different today. And huh. it's, but what is, what is so good about this is what you're saying is that your beliefs will ultimately drive your behavior. So to change behavior and outcome, we got to change our core beliefs first. And that that's powerful. No, no, no. You've got it backwards. Backwards? Right. <laughs> and what's weird, that's the beautiful part about it. Because changing beliefs could, 
What's interesting actually is the schemas are very stable. And usually somebody could take the schema questionnaire three, four, five, ten years later and still have the same schemas. So mm. I think if your schemas change, you probably, I don't know, I don't know if you have, but it means you probably have done a lot of work, been in therapy or thought about introspected and thought about it. Mm-hmm. But they are, they, they tend to be pretty stable and pretty rigid. Um, and really the therapy that I do, because changing beliefs is much harder than changing behaviors. It's, it's just a hundred times harder. And mm. the beauty of behavioral therapy actually is that you don't have, you could believe you could have the belief, for example, if you have a subjugation schema that you're going to be attacked, that you're going to be punished, that you're going to be abandoned and you could still make a request and see if those, if that actually happens, you could do a different behavior while still believing it. So actually what we do is we help people change their behaviors and we go, if you change your behaviors enough and you see that it gets disconfirmed, if you don't keep doing the same thing that confirms it, you do something different, you pay attention to the outcome, that will change your beliefs. I am such a bad student. I am such a bad student. No, because when we first, when we did this couples counseling three years ago, that's exactly what our therapist said. <laughs> you're not trying to change each other's schemas. You're trying to change behavior while accepting that your partner has these that's schemas. Ex- that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Wait, so you may, I'm dying to know, how have your schemas changed? And I want Abby to diagnose both of us. <laughs> diagnose us. What's our problem? <laughs> well, I think three years ago, I, my... Uh, the ones that showed up the most were self-sacrifice and unrelenting standards. Those showed up as high for me. Wait, where is unrelenting standards? Perfectionism? Uh, Perfectionism. perfectionism. Yeah, perfectionism. And when I took it again today, I didn't have any high schemas, but my my moderate one was perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And then next was self-sacrifice. So I guess it's like still similar, but they're just not as high anymore. And they're kind of somewhat flipped. And I totally understand why is... So they haven't changed, though. That's to Abby's right. point is they right. still yeah. are the same. They're just, yeah, you're they're managing just not as them intense. differently. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like you changed your relationship with them. It's not that mm-hmm. they've disappeared, but you're, rela- you're kind of holding them in a lighter way. They're not as real. They're not as true. They Probably when they're lower on the scale in the questionnaire, they impact your behaviors a little bit less, right? Because the whole goal is to have behavioral freedom. Because the issue is not our beliefs, right? When, when, our, when a schema gets triggered, it's like a whole experience, right? It's physiological, there's thoughts, there's feelings, there's sensations, there's memories, there's urges, right? It's a whole experience, right? We're like triggered. And our goal is not necessarily to change the automatic thoughts, the feelings, or the sensations, or the urges. It's to be able to change our relationship with that so that we're doing different behaviors. But mm. really, what ends up, making our beliefs stronger and stronger is our behaviors. And when we help people really do different behaviors mindfully and with intention and with paying attention to the outcome, Mm. often what they find is then the the belief becomes more malleable. The belief is not as strong. Wait, so Yue, you said that you think you know why they flipped and you think you know why they're lower. What is your hypothesis? I really think that like three years ago, I felt like I sacrificed a lot for relationships. So then to overcompensate, I would have perfectionism schema, thinking that I needed to up my standards about the people I was dating, because I was sacrificing so much. Like that was right, right, right. that was a narrative I was telling myself. 
after three years of work and being with a partner who definitely doesn't make me feel this way, I have a different relationship with my perfectionist schema where I know that I have the schema, but at least I know I have high standards for other people. But if they don't fulfill the standards, these unwritten standards I have for them, I have no right to resent them. Mm. At least I have this understanding. So right, I right. think now my second step from that is the self-sacrifice is that I've come down from being a perfectionist and thinking that I need to almost sacrifice a little bit more in relationships. I think your hypothesis is right on. I, I would have said exactly that. <laughs> I think, you know, what's interesting, I'm going to say something strange. I don't know how it's going to play out. <laughs> in my history of working with a lot of couples and, and men and women and schemas, I've seen a self-sacrifice schema. It is the most common for women. And I feel like it's a little bit right now in our collective unconscious or in the zeitgeist. Uh, like since Trump got elected, I really notice a lot of women, it, it, it like almost like the Me Too movement uh, really impacted the self-sacrifice scheme. Like suddenly women were like, wait a minute, like no means no. Mm, yeah. I have the right to say no. Not and why am I apologizing? Yeah, right? I love but it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, like what you described there and kind of the path that you took, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of my, my clients and other women that I know kind of going through this path and it's, it's been around these past mm -hmm. three years, you know, there, there's a way that our, our environment is impacting kind of like, I would say like collective schemas, yeah. right? Like our collective schemas are being impacted. I think of anything that we might've like swung too far over. I think like what UA was saying is like in relationships, you kind of need some self-sacrificing. Mm -hmm. Like it can't be so much self-sacrificing that you're losing yourself Clearly, that's when it really becomes the schema. But I think we, we're in a world in dating where people don't want to self-sacrifice at all. Therefore, it like never goes anywhere. Yeah, it's you, entitlement and perfectionist. You know, it's, I think what you're saying is a very interesting discussion. I, I completely agree with you. And you know what I think is interesting? I think that when I work with clients on any schema or on any new behavior, What's interesting about it is that often what happens is we go from one extreme to the other. Like whatever behavior we're doing, if we're at a zero and we start doing a different behavior, we go to like a 90. Or if we've been doing something at a 90, we start going to the opposite direction to a zero. And we kind of do that for a while until we get kind of in the middle of a 50. Like if somebody has yep. an emotional deprivation schema and they haven't been um, making requests or sharing their needs, and then we talk about it and they start noticing it more and more before they get to an evened out place, they get to an extreme place. Right? Yeah, I could see that. And you know, I think the other side of that could be people with an entitlement schema going to an extreme place, right? Because the opposite of that would be empathy and, and, and perspective taking and consideration, right? Especially empathy. But I, I agree with you that when you have been self-sacrificing for a while, or if you're kind of noticing as a, as a whole that, that, that you're doing that as a, as a collective, then yeah, I think that there is a lot of truth to the fact that we are heading now to another extreme and it becomes, it turns into a power struggle rather than realizing that actually there is a way to have win-win scenarios. Like neither person needs to subjugate, yep. right? Both people need to compromise. You can't have entitlement and self-sacrifice. Both people need to be willing to compromise. And that means neither person gets their ideal situation 
uh, if there is an entitlement, then neither person falls into an intolerable situation. And that's, that's the big difference, right? It's like the perfectionism is expecting I get my ideal all the time. Right. And you know what? You cannot be in relation to another person and have your ideal all the time. It's just not life or your partner is going to be a, a zombie, right? <laughs> so we have to be able to tell the difference between what is self-sacrificing and what is compromising and what is not getting my way exactly as I want, not met, make, getting my ideal, but noticing, well, I actually got good enough. I got close enough to my ideal and I'm not in an intolerable situation. And I also care that my partner is not in an intolerable situation. I'm not willing to get my ideal situation if it means that my partner is going to be in an intolerable situation. Mm. So, I, I mean, before we get to Julie's schemas, because <laughs> I want to diagnose her too in her words, this idea of this journey and how your schemas show up. So does it look like this where you still have these dominating schemas no matter where you are in your journey? It's just that some are more intense than others and then they they kind of go back and forth? Or is it if you let's say you have one schema that dims a little <laughs> bit, does another one come to light? No, 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 not necessarily. You know, the thing is, is that it, de- it all depends on how it manifests. Like, for example, somebody could have a very, very high self-sacrifice schema. And yet, if they're aware of it, they could do the behaviors that uh, where it does not impact their relationship. So what matters is not necessarily whether our schemas are high or dim. What matters is how much they impact our actions. Got like, it. For example, the number one thing I tell people with a self-sacrifice schema is I say, learn to say the word, never say no and never say yes. Definitely mm. never say yes. Always say, let me think about it. Just start with, mm. let me think about it and buy yourself time because the self-sacrificer is always like, yes. The entitled person is always like, nope. Right? right. And you help both people more so this the self-sacrificers say, let me think about it. And then you do little exercises to help them really connect with what they're actually needing. Because often when you've self-sacrificed for a long time, when you when you could work on the behaviors, it, it gets really hard to still be able to identify what you're actually needing. You've sacrificed for so long, you've lost the the kind of um, barometer of what you're needing. So you kind of help them do the behaviors that buy them the time because when they're no longer afraid to say no or when they could do that behavior, they get more in touch with what they're actually needing. Mm. So it's it's like <laughs> some some are some are dimmed already. Like somebody could have a dimmed schema with which impacts their relationship hugely. And some could have a very high schema, which impacts their relationships very lightly. Where What really matters is how aware are you of this voice, right? There's a narrator in your head and there's these stories and it's selling you the stories. They're not set, This narrator is not selling you these stories out of nowhere. It's not created in a vacuum. These things actually happen to you, right? You've got certain messages that if you're, if you, uh, don't put other people's needs before your own. You're selfish or, you, or you're not good, right? Um, or, or if you trust people, they'll betray you and they'll use you. So, so the fact that you've learned these schemas was adaptive at some point. Now, the behaviors you learned and what to do when those get triggers were also adaptive in your early childhood environment. Like a perfect example of this is the person with an emotional deprivation schema may become really hysterical when they have a need. They may just go, ah, and I'm falling apart and I'm hysterical. I'm falling apart. I need you to help me, right? Mm -hmm. And this may actually push other people away and not get their needs met. 
but it must have been that at some point in their life, maybe, for example, their mom was depressed. And if they fell or they had an issue, they had needs, it wasn't attended to. But if it was like a 10 out of 10, it was attended to. Mm. And so they learned, they learned that I have to be a really bad at a 10 out of 10 to be attended to. So it's like we learn mm. certain behaviors and they have always, those behaviors have always been adaptive in our origin family. That's mm. so fascinating. So it's, it's less, it's becoming aware of your schemas and then how to like manage it in a way. Right. It's like, there's, there's a voice and it, 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 that voice, as soon as you get triggered, everything that voice says to you pushes you to do an old behavior and every feeling that shows up. If you don't want to have that feeling, it will push you to do an old behavior. If you're willing to notice where that feeling is in your body, to love that, you know, to kind of treat it like a crying baby, right? Each schema is a crying baby. And we kind of go, oh, here's guilt. It makes sense. I feel guilty and it feels really bad. And now my mind is going, you're not going to feel guilty if you just agree to give them your car, just give them your car. You're a bad person. You're selfish, right? And you just go, it makes sense that I feel this feeling in my stomach and I feel this tightness in my throat. And there's this right, old feeling and experience of this guilt and, 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 and fear not being good enough. And then the more that you're willing to go, I could have this and it's okay. And it makes sense. I feel this way. And where is this in my body? And even take your hand and put it exactly on where you feel this feeling the most intensely and you rub it right just like a crying baby and you go I hear you when you're able to relate to it differently and you're not trying to push that experience away then you have all of these options do I want to say maybe maybe I want to say yes but I want to say yes tomorrow or maybe mm -hmm. I want to say no or maybe I want to say I'll do I'll say yes if you do this right there's all of these options open up these behavioral options when we're able to stay with the experience. And when, so, so I help people stay with the experience, but we also identify what are your values? Because our values are a compass. Our values tell us about what we wanna be about. So if I have values around being compassionate, being assertive, being fair, it, the clearer that I am about the, the stories and where they pull me versus the values, the more I'm able to stay with this uncomfortable feeling, the more I'll be able to choose the behaviors that move me towards values rather than choose the behavior that might give me an immediate relief but lead to long-term pain, right? Because it's almost like an addiction. Like if you, if you feel guilty and you say yes, you feel less guilty in the moment, but in the long run, you end up feeling resentful. That's so fascinating. I mean, I think like for me, cause this was the first time I ever did the schemas, like UA, you had experience in the past with it. And Which I, I, I can't believe, <laughs> I still can't believe. <laughs> I just can't. That story is just too ridiculous, but I do actually Unreal. remember you like telling me to take the quiz and I can't remember if I actually did it or not then. It's a pretty long quiz, so you might not yeah, have. I might not it have, is. <laughs> but I did. No, you did. You did. Well, I did it this time after you sent uh -huh, me the quiz. Uh -huh. And I think what was really interesting for me is I know I'm a perfectionist in like work mm -hmm. and in other, I just didn't realize like it showed up in relationships, but mm. it all makes sense. I mean, we talked about it earlier and I think all that fits me to the T that I have very high expectations for people in my life. You know, like sometimes I would expect a lot from people and I would also, I have, I think my second one. So my high, I had high perfectionism, moderate entitlement, and then moderate 
abandonment and then the rest of mine were low. Dependence was the next one. And I think what you were saying earlier, Abby, like I definitely have that experience with abandonment. And I've, it's something that I became very aware of in therapy too and have tried to change the stories in my head about that. But I do see how it plays into perfectionism as well that sometimes like I'll pull away because I don't want to get hurt first or, you know, like they'll be like, I'll hold someone to this high standard and then they can't meet it because I'll be afraid to be abandoned. So I definitely see the interconnected. I think though the part that really stood out to me is like I literally read my description and like a light bulb went off and I was like, oh my God, this explains my last like serious relationship. Uh (laughs) So it was basically what I got was you tend to be attracted to partners who have difficulty meeting your standards, including those who have a failure schema, a dependent schema or a defectiveness schema. And then you tend to seek out partners who are willing to acquiesce to your needs including those with a self-sacrifice schema, a subjugation schema, or emotional deprivation schema, a dependence schema, or abandonment, or effectiveness. Which I think like, I, I mean, I haven't done this quiz for my ex, but I think a lot of the ones that I just mentioned summarize, I think that he would score high on those. Right. So it was very interesting to me why perfectionism attracts some of these more, you know, like, and I think you said it well about just like, subjugation, for example, like you're looking for maybe more of like a dominant person or someone to kind of take the lead. I don't know any other thoughts you have, but I'll let you assess me. Those are just my my two cents. (laughs) Yeah, I think that looking at the way those two kind of relate, that there could be a finding partners that are like, um, I guess, that are not up to your standards, right? It's kind of just easier to find that partner that doesn't meet the standard, but like kind of like like a failure schema but but what's what's interesting about it is that there's like a flavor of ambivalence right because when you're fearing being abandoned and the feeling is kind of like oh no (gasps) right like this person is leaving me am i not good enough what's wrong with me and the feeling of perfectionism is a feeling like is this the right person for me i don't know right that there's criticism right like what's interesting is that criticism can function as a way to make us feel safer about abandonment, right? Like, let's say somebody's leaving me and I go, I love this person. No, don't leave me. But then if I start going, well, they're kind of messy mm. and they're not so smart and they're kind of boring and they're kind of oh. this, right? Like the more that I criticize them, the the more it kind of alleviates the fear of abandonment, right? Because then, well, is that person that great anyways? Maybe oh. I didn't, maybe they're doing me a favor, right? And so there's mm. this, it's, it's like a kind of, it's like a being on the fence kind of feeling or ambivalence with wondering, is it that I'm afraid of this person leaving me or is it that I want to be with them or do I not want to be with them or am I afraid of them leaving me? Interesting. Oh, wow. Chicken oh my God. This is like <laughs> making my head spin of all the different, like, right? <laughs> there's I'm so much. I'm, I'm really, I'm really conflicted about Julie's perfectionism. This scheme is very high for her. She's attracted to partners or tend to be attracted to partners who have difficulty meeting her standards, including those with a failure, dependence, or defect effectiveness schema. Why is that? So first of all, people with perfectionist schemas are definitely going to be attracted to anybody who will never live up to their standards because they're perfectionists. But why is it like almost over the other part of the spectrum, basically? Why would she be attracted to those with failure scheme or dependence or defectiveness? It feels like a total like 180. (laughs) Like it doesn't feel just like 
Yeah, it doesn't feel like you're setting yourself up for semi-success. Well, what's interesting about it is that we tend to actually be pulled towards those opposites, right? Because again, they confirm our belief. So the person who feels like a failure, when they find a person with a perfectionism schema, they know that they're a failure. And when the person with a perfectionism <laughs> schema, right, finds the person with a failure schema, they know that the person is not good enough, right? Oh my God. So what's interesting, <laughs> what's interesting about schemas is that schemas are beliefs that are really painful for us. They, they, they torture us, but they also make us feel safe, right? They make us feel safe in the world because if my beliefs mm. are confirmed, then it's like, if I believe I'm going to be abandoned on one level, that's really devastating and painful. But on another level, when that person abandons me, I feel this, like the world is known. The world is predictable. I knew that, look, of course you abandoned me. I knew you were going to abandon me, right? It's, it's like a conflict between not wanting that, that pain from our schemas, but the safety that it gives us when relationships are predictable and, yeah. and can reliably you know, end up the way we expect them to. It's very comforting. It's very safe, even if it's very painful. Sometimes we prefer that. So, okay, I'll, I'll use myself as an example here. Let's, I, I'm going to be a perfectionist. That's part of my DNA. Like mm -hmm. you said, you can't change your schemas. How do I work out of this that I'm not either attracting people that have this failure tendencies or like all the tendencies that basically would be the opposite of the perfectionist tendencies? That's not working for them either, right? It's not a help. Right. Well, I want to say that the beautiful part about us finding where we're kind of uh, pulled towards our polar opposite in some way, right? Uh, and in some way, uh, it could be bad, but in other ways, it could actually be really helpful. Like it could lead to emotionally restorative experience. So it's not about what schemas the other person has necessarily. It's more about how willing they are to do the work on them. Mm -hmm. So the person... Mm -hmm. So two people who are willing to see their schemas and who are willing to do the work on them and who are willing not just to start identifying and recognizing their own beliefs, their triggers, and their old coping behaviors, but to also notice their partner's core beliefs and their triggers and their pain. When both people are committed to that process, that's what really matters. Because the person with a self-sacrifice schema, for example, has a lot to teach the person with an entitlement schema. Mm. And the person with an entitlement schema has a lot to teach the person with a self-sacrifice sacrifice schema, if they could be able to call each other out and do the different behaviors, they could both together meet towards the middle. They could both move towards the middle together. Interesting. So it's not that you're going to change, like that just might be the people that are like I'm attracted to and are drawn to me might have those underlying schemas. And I think there's something about just the way some of them sound that sounds more negative than others. But at least what I'm right. hearing from you is that it's not that way, that there's positive and negatives in all of them. And it's about kind of getting to that 50% opposed to being more on the extremes of them. Is that correct? Or I, I think that exactly everything is good in moderation, but anything mm -hmm. to like, it's great to be sacrificing and considerate of others. Right. But if you do that at the cost of yourself, it's not good. And entitlement is good to feel like your needs matter. But when you feel like your needs matter more and, and come at the cost of other people feeling harmed, then that's not good. Anything Anything in moderation it could be good, but anything in a, the more extreme it is or the more rigid it is, uh, the, the more harmful it is. But for example, I could mm. give you some tips, for example, of what people with perfectionism can do. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> please. Since it's it. the number one, probably some other people since, listening can identify yeah, right. what they'll see of this. <laughs> 
So one thing that's really helpful for perfectionism is to share appreciation and gratitude. So Mm. that doesn't mean to actually share it with your partner. I mean, it's good to share it with your partner, but to connect with it yourself, Mm. right? To really be like every day, look at what, how did this person contribute to this life, to my life? What were the moments where they did satisfy me? What did that feel like, you know? I love that because like I think also just like to speak to my like I I don't want to paint my ex in a bad way. He obviously had many great qualities as well. And I think making taking those time to be considerate of those and appreciative of those is really important with anyone is going to have flaws in a relationship. So I'm glad that you said that. Well, also the the thing with perfectionists is that they focus on the flaws and focus on the lows and then you forget about the Right, right. You're in a relationship with the person for a reason. It's not for their it's like the yeah it's like easy to complain about things but you're not like you have to really take the time to appreciate the person as well Mm -hmm. i want to make sure that i'm also i'm not saying that that means you accept bad behavior right Right, so finding gratitude it doesn't mean somebody's doing bad things to you and you go oh okay i don't want to be perfectionistic let me let this go that's not Mm -hmm. what that means Mm -hmm. because i really want to point out when we were talking about the idea of uh, perfectionism being a bit of a of a overcompensation for self-sacrifice right is that if you start telling yourself i'm being perfectionistic i'm being perfectionistic you might start self-sacrificing or letting behaviors go and and that's not the goal so the other piece around what perfectionists can do is really identify in general what are your values in relationships for example so there's two pieces there's identifying your values in your partner and then there's identifying your ideal situation versus intolerable situation i'm going to talk first about values and then i'll get to the next one yeah mm-hmm. but you want to be thinking about what are your values in in relationships in yourself and in your partner and you know one one thing that people with a perfectionism schema can do that could help them notice this is like you can draw out a sheet where you put values let's say we write values and then we write importance from zero to ten and then we write me and then we write my partner write about ten values but i'll do three to keep it simple so my value is gratitude assertiveness and um collaboration right those are my values and let's say um affection and then the next i rate importance from zero to ten this one's important at a ten this one's important at a nine this one's important at a nine the next thing is i then measure myself either for the day or for the week from zero to a hundred percent how close am i to being let's say um collaborative Mm. was i 80 percent collaborative was i 70 percent collaborative was Mm -hmm. was i 40 percent collaborative so you rate yourself and then you rate your partner Partner. Today was my partner. You could either do it every day or every week. This week, my partner was 70% collaborative or 80% collaborative, right? And then you go to the next one, assertive. How assertive was I? Was I 80%, 20%? And nobody's 100%, maybe right. 98%. And then you rate your partner. And now as a perfectionist, see, I do this exercise with each scheme. I tell them to focus on different things. As a perfectionist, what you want to focus on first, you want to focus on the importance rating. If you notice that you write 10 values down and each one of them is a 10 out of 10 of importance you realize that you're having some unrelenting standards there, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like if you have things like humor, maybe humor is like an eight and honesty is like a 10, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe humor is like a 9.5 and honesty is a 10. But if you've got 10 values and everything is a 10 out of 10 of importance, you want to say, huh, I'm not able to distinguish that there are things that are higher or lower priorities. There's things I could let Mm -hmm. go of and there's things that are Mm non-negotiable.
negotiable. So for a perfectionist, I have to really clarify what is non-negotiable. What are the values and and right and and levels that become clo- a done deal? Right. Versus what is a situation that's not my ideal. But it's good enough. Like I'm not satisfied at 100%. So the next thing you want to look at is the ratings of your partner, right? So then you want to look at, am I being as consistent with my values as my partner? Like is my partner, am I rating my partner as like 70 and I'm upset with them and I'm all 20s, right? right. It's like you look at it and you're like, I've been like loving and kind or collaborative or honest at like 20, 30, 40. My partner's like a 60 and I'm like, why are you a 60, right? Then you've (laughs) got to kind of work on yourself first, get yourself to 80s, right? And then you check in on where your partner is, right? I think that's a really good point too. And I think it's a good segue to takeaways because I think there is like, you know, it's, <laughs> I definitely can identify that with the perfectionist standards is that like you want to have it all. And I think right. what I'm learning from all of this whole thing, it's understanding yourself clearly by seeing what your schemas are, what those beliefs are, and then using that information as power. It's not necessarily something right. is wrong or one is better than the other, even though some might sound better than others, depending on how you interpret it. But it's really not about that. It's about just how we can do it. And I love this idea of like holding yourself to the same standard. Like, am I actually stepping up in the way that I need to be opposed to blaming someone else? Or if there's another schema that you have, it's like, how do I work with this schema to get to a place with a relationship? Like, I can totally see this situation if you're always saying yes I love this idea of taking a pause and saying let me think about things like I think there's just so many different ways that you can handle your schemas so yeah I guess knowledge is power I think is probably like my biggest takeaway and also then using that knowledge to then impact your behaviors and being intentional about your actions is very is power right yep I think just with schemas in general is you have to decipher what you have control of and what you don't have control of and I think what you have control of is how you digest your schema into a behavior. And that's what is ultimately in your hands. But some things are out of your control, how you were brought up, Mm -hmm. the shit that happened to you in your life, external factors are out of your control. So even if you come out with after you take this very long quiz, (laughs) you'll learn so much about yourself. But even if you come out with like an entitlement schema, like Julie, what you're saying, there's no positive or negative on any of these schemas, you have to first understand where that comes from. Start asking why you feel the way you do, why you believe the way you do, and how you can change your behavior based on um, your schemas. I think that's like the ultimate takeaway is knowing what you have control of. I think this whole notion that you said, Abby, that schemas are purely a belief And it's really up to us. And that's the training, the cognitive uh, therapy is to like understand, like, how much does action support the belief? Is this a story I'm telling in my head? Or is it a reality? Mm -hmm. And then how do I change my behavior knowing that this is a story that's going to keep popping up in my head? So I'm not, you know, (laughs) making myself like putting myself at a disadvantage with relationships. Cause like, I don't know about you guys. I don't want to have like standards that no one can meet. Cause that basically will right. mean that you'll be alone forever. So it's like, how do I work on accepting people for where they are while also obviously not s- accepting bad behavior. Right. And that's what I wanted to say. There's no bad schemas, but there is bad behavior. <laughs> 
Mm, yeah, there's no bad schemas, but there is bad. Yeah, there, any schema there's or is neutral, but a behavior could be hurtful or harmful mm -hmm. or, or or helpful. So yeah, or effective or ineffective, and 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 I agree that the most important thing is really really recognizing what is in your control. So the schema, your belief, the thoughts that pop into your head are out of your control. Our mind is popping eight million random thoughts that are out of our control, and our sensations are out of our control. Like if a lion jumped on top of us right now we would have a lot of sensations <laughs> that we would not be able to control and we'd have a lot of feelings and thoughts about it that are completely out of our control but we right. our behaviors are completely in our control none of us would like smack that tiger in the face <laughs> <you know? laughs> our behaviors are completely under our control and that's why working behaviorally with beliefs is the fastest way to having a, a an effective relationship you could have the same exact belief and still do something that will make your relationship better. I also like the other takeaway that you, I, I mean, a tactical way to to deal with all of this is mapping your reality against mm -hmm. your beliefs. I Absolutely. love like taking kind of record of, um, for, I mean, I think, for example, Julie and I are both perfectionists and we've had friends tell us, why don't you promote your podcast more? <laughs> why don't you talk about the accomplishments? And we've both been like, ah, we're just not there yet. Yeah, we're like, we're still pretty small, we're starting out. And a friend literally had to sit us down and show all the stats of our accomplishments through the last right, four and a half years right. and said, look at how much you've done. And I think that's when we sh shifted our perspective, yep, right, Julie, absolutely. that we were like, okay, we are just so, such fucking perfectionists. <laughs> we forgot to celebrate our own wins. I think I think that that speaks to schemas specifically towards women. Like yeah. I, I'm working now on talking about gender schemas. This idea, right, of, of being afraid to kind of put your accomplishments out there or kind of, um, I guess, right, talk highly of yourself, promote yourself. That's a very gendered-based schema that women are really conditioned <laughs> totally. to feel very ashamed of doing something like that. We have not been in the workforce for as long. We have not had, evolutionarily speaking, as much practicing of this. We're very new at it. And so, yeah, I think that that's very, very much related to uh, a female schema, right, women. Yeah, I could totally see that. I think the one other takeaway I have is I definitely now see why you lean more to schemas over Myers-Briggs. Because <laughs> right. I feel like Myers-Briggs is interesting, but it like scratches the surface and it doesn't really right. give you as much actionable things you can do. Like I feel like I have so many things I can go out and do now that's going to like actually right. directly impact how I date and have relationships. So yeah, I, I'll I think say that <laughs> too that I, I I I prefer schemas over attachment styles too. I prefer because uh, mm -hmm. I think again schemas are more practical and they give you specific advice and you can make real changes. I want to add another thing for perfectionists to do after you fill this out is also you want to look at where your partner is from zero to a hundred and you want to look at it through several weeks. So for example, if your partner is like 60s one week and then 80s another week and then 90s another week and then 70s another week, you have to realize actually that's a good relationship. Right. Right. You mm -hmm. you so so if if you know like a, you, and then you also want to look at whether they're the whether they score high on the on the ones that you rated the most important. So you want to actually start looking and seeing that even if you're feeling dissatisfied, look at the paper and ask yourself 
Because I tell, I tell my clients, if you and your partner are rating the other person at an 80 or higher, You're think well. about that as an ideal relationship. Yeah, that's <laughs> That is an good. ideal relationship. Yeah. Now, you're not always going to be at 80. You're never going to be at 100. If you're wanting 100, you're, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not your couple's therapist because I can't get you there. <laughs> but 80 is very good. 80 is fantastic. And it's not 80 every single day. You know, sometimes they'll be at a 20, but then you want to think about, are they a 20 at something that's important at a two or are they a 20 at something that's important at a 10? Are they a 20 for a week or are they a 20 for three months? I right? love Abby, this. Yeah. Abby, the perfectionist in me and the Asian in me just went, isn't 80% a B minus? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I was totally thinking too. I I'm like, I definitely expect like, 100, but this is where I need right? to like, work on it. I, at least 95%. I feel you. I feel you. You're talking totally. to two perfectionists here. <laughs> but you know what? The thing is, is that think about it this way. If it was just you taking the test, you could get an A plus. When there's right. you and another person and you're both taking the test, you got to, right? right? right. There's got to be more leeway. That is such a good point, though. Like 80, like there's this, um, oh my God, now I'm blanking on that show. Remember the show with Aziz Ansari? What the hell was that called? Oh, Master of None. Do you remember that? Yes. Like when yes. they asked to rate each other and they say like a seven and they decide to break up. And then like he goes to his married friend and they're like, that's pretty damn good. Like <laughs> exactly. sometimes I give my wife a two. Like you just fucked up. It just shows you that you can't treat your relationship like you do with Yelp reviews. Because with Yelp reviews, yeah. people only write when they have an extremely great experience or extremely bad experience. No right. one's ever writing a review for a restaurant where they were like, the meal was pretty good. No, Service was right. pretty good. <laughs> I came out of it pretty full. Like that you never hear that review, but I think that's what sustained a healthy relationship is that things are pretty good you know like that your your needs and your values are being met so fascinating fascinating thank you so much for enlightening my life for the second time yes <laughs> <laughs> i swear this is like the most like eye-opening of my past relationships so thank you again for also and it shedding takes light. a while it takes a while to wrap your head around. Yeah, it, right? it does. Like, I, it does. I think I, I'm going to have to sit with this for a little tonight, but um, we'll post all of this information, yep. including the link to the quiz uh, in our show notes. But Abby, if people want to get in touch with you to find clarity, <laughs> how can they find you? You can go to Bay Area CBT Center.com. So CBT, like Cat Boy Tom, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And then there's also a CBTonline.com. And cbtonline.com has, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a lot new, uh, of new resources and there'll be worksheets like nonviolent communication worksheets and worksheets that people could fill out, right? Like related, related to schemas and looking at your triggers and your thoughts and your behaviors. Or even this worksheet I just told you about right now is all available on cbtonline.com to fill out right on your computer or your phone. Awesome. It will link all of this in the show notes too for everyone and on the website so they can all find it but definitely recommend taking the quiz to start off and probably listening to this episode a couple times I feel like there's like yeah. so much to take in it might be one of those ones that you got to repeat a couple times to get get it all but I love this idea of using workbooks and really looking at your own stuff in more depth so thank you for sharing those resources don't go to Bay Area CBD Center.com there's a huge difference huge difference 
But but Abby, uh, I think, you know, like I, I do want to mention this for our listeners. If you were, if your mind was blown by this episode and you loved having Abby on as a guest with us, uh, please give us a rating in Apple Podcasts. Yes. This deserves a five-star rating of anything else. I think this is like what's been so enlightening about my life and my relationship <laughs> with my partners and how I show up. So definitely don't forget to do that. And also for all the resources, just go to datablepodcast.com for everything. Yeah, it would be fun to um, do like have random people call in and we, we, we <laughs> diagnose their schemas. <laughs> <laughs> that is a oh good my one. God, that's yep. a great follow up. We might have to do that oh next season. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's <laughs> you, a great you, idea. You email us the questionnaire, we tell you everything about your relationships. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah, thank you for having me. I just this I just really enjoyed this chat and I just really I'm amazed at the fact this your story is just just amazing. <laughs> so I'm just really it's I had so a blast. serendipitous. But thank you so, <laughs> so much for serendip. joining us and taking the time. This was so so enlightening. Thank you for having me. It was fun. All right. We won't hold you up for too much longer. We're gonna wrap up this episode. The Dateable Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcast. Want to continue the conversation? First, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at Dateable Podcast. Tag us in any post with the hashtag stay dateable and trust us, we look at all of those posts. Then head over to our website, datablepodcast.com. There you'll find all the episodes as well as articles, videos, and our coaching service with vetted industry experts. You can also find our premium Y series where we dissect, analyze, and offer solutions to some of the most common dating conundrums. We're also downloadable for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher Radio, and other podcast platforms. Your feedback is valuable to us, so don't forget to leave us a review. And most importantly, remember to stay dateable.